if you take someone out of an MBA, right, how well equipped are they to actually lead human beings? They may know marketing exceptionally well. They may be an expert in finance and accounting exceptionally well. They may be a highly trained economist. They may be a very exceptionally strong strategist. But can they lead a team of human beings to produce incredible results? And I was left with the answer, like, probably not. This is the ERP Organizational Change Journal podcast, brought to you by Nestle & Associates, a Newport Beach, California-based ERP organizational change management firm serving the private equity industry. The ERP OCJ seeks to share expertise, insight, experience, and research, and to create effective conversation to help guide ERP organizational change to real, measurable, and verified success. And now, here's your ERP expert and host, the founder of Nestle & Associates, Dr. Jack Nestle. Hello everyone, Jack here. Today we're going to focus on successful and sustainable organizational change. Research suggests that successful and sustainable ERP change requires that executive leadership understands, evaluates, reflects upon, and improves their ability to lead ERP organizational change via an improved understanding of identified success factors, especially those pertaining to organizational culture and change. All of us here at the ERP OCJ hope you find this podcast useful as we share lessons learned, discover best practices, and explore the human element components of ERP organizational change. So in this episode, we will discuss one of our guest books titled The Science of Successful Organizational Change with Paul Gibbons. In his book, Paul offers a blueprint for change that fully reflects the newest advances in mindfulness, behavioral economics, sociology, and complexity theory. Paul is a behavioral scientist, future of work, culture, and leadership expert. He is also a keynote speaker, author, and professor. Paul has also published multiple books, including The Science of Successful Organizational Change, How Leaders Set Strategy, Change Behavior, and Create an Agile Culture, and Impact, The Science of Change in Behaviors, Hearts, and Minds. Paul currently works for IBM's Talent Practice, where he develops leading-edge points of view on contemporary critical themes such as the future of work, war for talent, ethics and AI, sustainability in HR, and culture change. And he also helps IBM's clients solve their leadership and culture challenges using behavioral science. I'll also add that Paul was a professor of practice at the University of Denver, Daniels College of Business. So joining us from Denver, Colorado, Paul, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you. I'm exhausted just listening to that. <laughs> well, it, you know, Paul, I'm so excited to share your expertise and experience. You have some great insight to share with me today and with our listeners. But Paul, before we get started, can you go ahead and further introduce yourself to our listeners? Maybe describe a little bit more about who you are and your experience and what you currently do. Well, um, yeah, I mean, I can I can link back. We can get right into the content. Um, I had uh, I, I had a career in the 80s as a, an investment banker. I was a strategy guy. Guy, a math guy, a science guy. I started life as a pharmaceuticals analyst. Uh, I was an economist. I did all that stuff in the 80s. That was my 80s. And I joined consulting. I think I use the metaphor poacher term gamekeeper. But I went I went into the consulting business in 1993 at what became PricewaterhouseCoopers in London. And I've had two epiphanies in my career. One epiphany was I was doing all this strategy work in financial services for Bankers Trust and J.P. Morgan and Barclays Bank in England. And um, one of the things I found that was really frightening and disheartening to me was that we would get immensely clever 
you ever seen Dilbert? You know the the thing with consultants yeah, right. uh, uh, with a yeah. spare like brain attached to their fanny pack. And so we would do you know intellectually robust work, make recommendations to clients, and I t- very frequently found they didn't action them. They agreed with them, and they were you know we presented them to the board and the management committees and the executive committees and the leadership team and you know all of that. And still, even though they loved our ideas, they had this inability to execute. I think with your background, this will resonate with you, is that this is a sort of frightening thing is how do we in organizations get our best ideas used? How do we execute? And and that's where your practice lies is how to help clients execute. So I went over to the change side because I was fascinated by like, how do we actually make this change happen? It seems to be more than just having a bunch of smart guys, you know, uh, you know, making recommendations. So that was one epiphany. And I retrained as a change consultant and I got training and coaching and counseling psychology and organizational behavior, industrial and organizational society. I was a I was a kind of learning junkie in the 1990s. And I founded my own firm uh, in the leadership space in London. We were super successful in the leadership world. We had, I think at one time, we were working for seven of the top 10 companies in Europe uh, and the Fortune in the Europe 500, if you will, we were working for them. So we did very well. And in the 2000s, I moved to, to the United States and sold that consulting business and didn't know what to do with myself. You know, I, I was 50 and I was way too young to retire. I think 80 is too young to retire. So like, what's next for me now? And I'd always wanted to write a book. I'd never written a book before. I had no idea. Um, in the 1990s, I was kind of a shitty writer, but I still like writing. So so I turned myself into a good writer, wrote my first book, The Science of Organizational Change. And what the other epiphany, this is the second epiphany. The first epiphany is like, like, you know, it takes more than good ideas for change to happen. The second epiphany was uh, a lot of the tools that we as change experts, and I was now considered myself a change expert, used were in the domain of influencing and persuasion and training and town halls and communications planning and all of that kind of stuff. And the other epiphany I had was not all of that stuff was making the difference that I thought it should make. In other words, we could persuade someone that something was a good idea um, and we can get them motivated to execute the idea, but we needed behaviors to follow. And I think every human being will realize that. Mm-hmm. Uh, our best intentions, our habit change, so for take more than good ideas, uh, more than that, it takes behavioral change. And behavioral change doesn't necessarily follow from thinking something's a good idea. So I became interested in behavioral science because this whole world now came out with the book Thinking Fast and Slow and Nudge and Predictably Irrational. It was like, hey, human beings, they behavior change can sometimes be executed in really elegant ways without – I'm thinking about nudges, you know, the hard work of trying to change someone's minds. Habit change isn't at all about just motivation. It's about much more than that. So that was the second epiphany is, are we really changing behaviors? Like if you go send someone on a two-day training course, how much of that are they using when they get back to the hard work of the office? Uh, You know, if you have this huge town hall where there's a wealth of ideas and enthusiasm and everything like that, do behaviors follow you know, some of the best intentions of people. So that was my other epiphany is that the answer was in my mind, no, not enough. So those are my two, those are my two epiphanies. That's my sort of career, 
career in 250s. So I should have just well, that. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, next book, right? Next book. Yeah, right. That is great. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to drilling into those two topics because two ideas uh, near and dear to my heart. And, you know, the idea of strategy to action, right? I mean, two different things. And it's one thing to have the smartest people you can get and build a strategy. It's an entirely different thing to execute on that for a variety of reasons. And then the idea of, you know, I kind of think of, of it as, you know, process versus behavioral change. Yeah. Um, so, you know, really two great ideas. I love it, Paul. So I, let's dig in. I want to elaborate on those ideas a little bit more with you. So, you know, one, one thing I do want to ask is, uh, and this was on your website, and I'm going to share a quote with our listeners, but you said, my mission is to bring a science-based approach to culture, wellness, sustainability, the future of work and leadership to make practical the finest academic ideas so that business leaders can deploy those rather than dated ideas or worse myths you, you, you've mentioned. I do use that word, yes. <laughs> but uh, do me a favor, if you would define for our listeners science-based approach and then tell me what its value is. Well, you know, it's funny, the very first model, so I wanted to become a change guy in the 1990s, right? I was disenchanted with the strategy world. We weren't making a difference I wanted to make in the world. I wanted to be I wanted to be um, on the field scoring goals rather than the, the guys shouting on the, the sidelines. So that's why I became a change guy. And the very first course I took was PricewaterhouseCoopers Change Management Practitioner course. And the very first model they put up on the screen is a model that you'll have seen from a woman called uh, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross um, called Denial, Anger, Bargaining, Depression, Acceptance, the so-called change curve. I, I think all your listeners will be familiar with that. Uh, is, is it one that resonates with you? Have you heard of that model? I, I have. Yeah, I'm familiar with it. Yeah. So that model, the change curve, would imply that the researcher in the 60s did this research on people who were dying. And the idea that I was taught in my very first change course was that change mirrored that experience. First, you'd have denial, and then you'd bargain, and then you'd anger. And there was this dip into depression, and then finally you'd, you'd accept it. And why that's a myth is first of all, anybody listening will think, why should change be like dying uh, again, to remind me? <laughs> but yet that's orthodoxy. You know, until like yeah. a year ago, that was the logo that was on the website of the Organizational Change Practitioners Forum on, on LinkedIn. And so that is not based in science. Although, I mean, she did some research, but to take the science that she did on the experience of someone dying and saying, oh, by the way, the new workday system will affect people in the same way is, I think, patently absurd. So the book I'm having, I don't want to turn this into a promotional thing. I've got a book coming out in, in a few weeks called Change Myths that goes through five or six of the most pervasive myths of which that's the first one. So when I say science-backed, what I mean to say is that you know it's been evaluated by evidence that you can actually back it up with science. And not a lot of stuff that we do in change has that, is that robust. You know, it's more like a craft. It's more to me like carpentry and more to me like making use of models. It's a bit of an of, art. Yeah, right. exactly. Made up in the 80s and 90s. You know, there's stuff around like Adcar, for example, that was from thing John Cotter's model. There's a model from a guy called Kurt Levine called Unfreeze, Change, Refreeze. And, you know, these things are at the core of orthodox change management. Let's take that last one, that three-step unfreeze, change, refreeze. That model has been around since 
the 1940s. Well, does it apply to modern organizations? Like, mm-hmm. can you say modern organizations are frozen? Uh, are they? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, right. I, th- I think we're, we're in a different world where, where actually organizations are constant change. It's not just that organizations are these static things and then somebody decides that they're going to make some change happening, change happening all the time. So this model of organizations is frozen. And then from the idea that they're frozen, you have to unfreeze them. And the language you use for that is burning platform, for example, or create a sense of urgency from the famous John Cotter eight steps. And so that is another thing because those at their heart have you need to instill a sense of almost fear in people use some kind of emotional activation not like inspiration not that kind of activation but kind of a fear-based kind of burning platform was you know to people who were trained not to jump off an oil rig found that that was the only way to save their life was to jump off the oil rig you know because the platform was burning it's kind of macabre so so when i say that i say like a lot of the stuff on which we founded the change management organizational change profession to me just seemed to not make sense that's the epiphany that's great i appreciate that and so let me uh maybe peel that onion back just a little bit further and i I don't want to paraphrase for a reason so allow me to provide our listeners with a couple more quotes just so i can drive home my question yes And one thing is you say change mythology. The change world is populated by gurus where popularity is a proxy for expertise. But many change ideas, learning styles, 72010, MBTI, sense of urgency have been challenged by science. What should we discard? What do we replace those ideas with? And Paul, you also share that, quote, your goal is to extend business research beyond trivial concepts and fads, especially business leadership, and go around it in a serious empirical and theoretical work from outside traditional business schools and business consulting. And just to add another another quote, and quote, to do that, we need a sound scientific understanding of people, but most of the ideas used to lead people are based on fads, myths, pseudoscience, and unproven management models. The 21st century research provides us with some new ideas to replace the old in areas such as behavioral economics, new organization structures, the psychology of risk, complexity theory, social complexity, and neuroscience. I, I love that, Paul. That's why I wanted to share that quote. And, and so in your book, and then here's my question. Yeah. In your book, you discuss defenders of faith, how to prove something works, right? How to yeah. prove something works in this world out there where there's so much stuff and ideas. So how then do you, Paul, how do organizations know that a consultant's practice is founded in science-based approach? So so you already told me what science-based approach is. You told me the value. Yeah. Well, then how do as organizations and leaders, how do they know? They don't spend as much time as maybe Paul or Jack and get so engaged in the leadership theories and that sort of thing. So how do organizations know what they can really count on? Well, here's a simple thing, right? I mean, there's something that everybody in the world has done, which is MBTI, Myers-Briggs Type Indicator, right? Yeah. Everybody, that, that again, that's something else that's based on the work of um, a mother-daughter pair. About 100 years ago, the mom started becoming passionate about personality typing. She developed her own personality type. Then she discovered this guy called Carl Jung, and Carl Jung had his other personality type. And from Jung's personality type, we have this MBTI. Now, the question with MBTI is like, is it based in science? And the answer is no. Jung was more of a mystic than a scientist. Uh, And he sort of pulled those four things out of his, you know, extensive experience as a psychotherapist. But if you look into Jung's four categories, uh, they're not at all validated by science. Now, there are 
ones that are. So there's something called the Big Five. Mm-hmm. Um, which ones survive? Well, only one of Jung's categories survives into the Big Five, and that's the one that's the difference between introversion and extroversion. The other three of them you can cast out. And so there are scientific alternatives. Now, the Big Five has been validated by neuroscience and fMRI research. It was derived using statistical methods. And the Big Five is just one example of, of a shift. The other one that was really interesting to me when I was writing my book, The Science of Organizational Change, I bought this book on chance because it had a great title, which is called The 50 Myths of Popular Psychology. And you know, I, I bought it because I, I was curious, right? And this was a very robust book written by a guy who's unfortunately just passed away from Emory University called Scott Lillianfield. And of those 50 myths, I had a master's in psychology and been training as an applied psychologist and working in applied psychology and business for, I don't know, 20 years when I read this book. And I read this book and I think I believed like 30 of them. <laughs> and so it was yeah. an epiphany for me. It was like, Oh, dude. So, okay. What's an example of that? So one of the ones is learning styles, right? So there's this idea that you'll get really interested in this. So there's an idea that there's a thing called learning styles. And if you hear even the woman uh, who worked in the Trump administration, what was her name? The secretary of education. She's from Michigan, like you. DeVos. DeVos. Yes, that's right. The DeVos family. And she said, yeah, I want to make sure every student in this country has curricula that are tailored to their learning styles. Uh, I read this book and I... (laughs) Holy thing. So here's the the thing about learning styles. It's trivially true that we have preferences. Some people prefer video. Some people prefer audio. Some people prefer the written word. Some people prefer what's called kinesthetic learning. It's trivially true that we have preferences. Now, the question is, can you extrapolate from people have preferences to if you teach someone in accord with their learning style, this is called the matching hypothesis. So you match the way the material is presented in the classroom or in the workplace to someone's learning style. Do they learn faster? And so you can study that, right? You can you know, look at people's learning styles. They can take the learning styles inventory questionnaire, right? And then you can give them learning experiences, different modalities and say, how well do these people learn, right? So you can test that with science, right? And the truth of the matter is people don't learn faster or better when you teach them content that's aligned with their learning style. That's a fascinating thing. And it's super counterintuitive because you would think like, oh, I like video better, so obviously I'll learn better if I watch videos. Well, it's just not the case. And that's a a fascinating thing because our entire educational system, 93% of teachers believe in and use learning styles in the classroom. So that was a fascinating thing to me. And here's the other thing that I was illuminated by the guy who wrote this book because I had to get him on my podcast, Scott Lillianfeld. I had to talk to him. I said, so, so, well, what's the harm in that? You know, so my student may not learn faster if he's watching a video or uh, an auditory listener or whatever method we're delivering the content to him. And he may not learn faster, but he likes it better. Isn't that better? And he said, here's the thing. If you're a soccer player and you're coaching a young, really talented 10-year-old soccer player, and this guy is super good with his right foot, and he really, really prefers his right foot, are you doing him a service by saying, okay, use your right foot? Mm-hmm. No, because to become a well-rounded player, he needs to do what's really uncomfortable for him and learn to use that left foot. And so he not only said that learning styles, uh, that matching hypothesis was was wrong, but he actually said that it's harmful. And that's an interesting thing to me, huh, too, because in, today, in today's world, right, in today's yeah. world, you need to be a multimedia learner. You need to be able to gather the nectar from where it is, from its inside books, <laughs> YouTube videos, it's on LinkedIn yeah. posts. 
you know, you need to be this kind of all-rounded learner because learning is the meta skill for the 21st century that's, you know, pretty important compared to many other things, the skills that we need in organization. It's the most important meta skill, I would say, is being a great learner. And so you need to learn to learn in a multimillion thing. So are they serving my 10-year-old child by saying, oh, you're an auditory listener uh, or you're a visual learner and just providing them with content in that modality? And the answer is, it looks like no, you're doing them a great disservice, yeah. like the soccer player who prefers to use his right foot. So I, I think, you know, see, these are interesting things that, you know, science is teaching us that our orthodoxy in the teaching profession and their orthodoxy, you know, among the change community too, because change community is always talking about like, how do I tailor training to people's learning styles? So that's, that's a rather long, I hope that's an interesting story too. <laughs> that is great. That, that illustration is, is fantastic. And you know, I, I will say, I, I love this. I, you and I could talk about this particular topic for a couple of hours. You know, one of the things you may may or may not have noticed, I mean, we have a lot of L&D professionals on our podcast here and uh, learning and development. And we do that for a reason so that we can talk about these ideas that you're talking about in effective and efficient education. Because, you know, for me, in the context of what Nelson Associates does, we're an ERP organizational change firm. You know, that's, yeah. that's what we do. And so guess what? A part of that is significant learning. It's significant development of the organization's people. And also, guess what? A lot of the principles that you're talking about here that might apply through K through 12 apply to adult learners as well. You can't minimize it. And in fact, I think that, you know, and I've studied hundreds and hundreds of project plans, formally and informally, and the tactical piece and, and, you know, Paul, back to what you were just talking about with your epiphany, you know, in your introduction, this idea of taking strategy and ideas and put it into action. Well, first of all, your strategy has got to be sound, but then making yeah. it most effective in practice, again, is a whole new story. And I think that that very idea and that epiphany certainly applies to large-scale organizational change as well. But anyways. Well, I think you find in your, in your practice that one of the things that we talk about a lot about is engagement. And one of the things that I think is true that you've almost certainly found is we engage too few people too late. Yeah. <laughs> right. I, yeah. So, you know, yeah. get people involved and inspired and aware, involve them in some of the decision-making process appropriately. Of course, earlier in the process, I think that's one of the things that's kind of one of my mantras from the change practice. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, Paul, I, I do want to ask you, you mentioned a couple of times, you know, so far in our conversation today, uh, leadership. So I do want to ask you something. In fact, I have a leadership article that we're going to post here in the next couple of days. And I talk about this exact idea. But on your site, again, you'd mentioned that for leadership, most models of leadership and change were developed in the previous century. And most yeah. leadership education is rooted in ideas of leadership that were birthed when organizations were different, end quote. So my question for you, you know, you, you see this, you know, talk about evidence-based approach and evidence-based research and, you know, applied research. You know, these ideas kind of change over time because our context and our world changes. But what would you say are the pitfalls of using 20th century leadership notions in the 21st century organizations? Just in general, I mean, any thoughts to that question? You know, I know it's a pretty, uh, it's a pretty yeah. wide open question, but what would be your initial response to that? Where did our ideas of big organizations come from? If you go way back to the beginning of the 20th century and organizations began to scale in the industrial revolution and into the 20th century with great American companies such as Ford Motor Company and stuff like that, how do we run a big company? And the answers we found came from the only two big organizations that existed on the planet previously where we would have 
you know, hundreds of thousands of people and we had to organize them to produce value together. And that was the church and the military. There's yeah. where we learned. And those have a particular way of, there's a particular hierarchy, a rigid hierarchy in, in the military and the church. I'm particularly the Catholic Church, but you know, those were how we learned when we began to think about how to run big organizations that the way the leadership templates that we inherited, highly structured, highly hierarchical, highly formal, uh, rigid structures, you know, boxes on an org chart. And that's the way that, you know, we learned to run big companies, of course. And of course, it produced a lot of value. We created these huge bureaucratic enterprises. I work for one, IBM. And the question is, when we came into our century, we began to rethink two things. We began to rethink command and control because people today, workers have a lot of liberty, particularly in a tight talent market as we have today. They can vote with their feet. And so command and control, which reduces the workers' autonomy and engagement is a really sort of dangerous turf. But yet we've inherited these notions and they die very slowly. So that's one thing is the sort of end of the command and control. The other thing is these kind of rigid boxes and structures. And we've begun to think about ways about making organizations more agile and more responsive. So in a very static external environment, if you have a static organizational structure, you'll, you'll be fine. But in an organization which is changing quickly, you need to be able to pivot and you can't pivot if your hierarchies are super rigid. So those two things um, are features that, you know, we hear the word agility yours to death today is how do you create agile organizations, not just agile projects. I think the agile methodology has a lot to teach us about how to run projects, but how do you create agile organizations? And that was the question I began to ask in the science of organizational change golly, now it's 10 years ago, is how do we create agile organizations? Because a lot of what we do in change management is we are trying to put out change fires where things are going badly um, and where what we're bumping up against is these formal structures that get in the way of change. And so a lot of what I had to do in my early change work was help, in a sense, put out change fires where things had gone really, really badly for the organization. People were just, you know, leaving. Um, there was one organization, it was a finance function reorganization I was worked in. They had 30% attrition. All the people with good resumes were leaving because they were so pissed off with the change. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so I was called in to put out a lot of change fires. As I said, you know, change is often brought in too little, too late. And I was often brought in like halfway through when, if you'll forgive the vulgarity, the shit had hit the fan. And they said, we want this change expert to come in and sprinkle some change pixie dust to make everybody feel better. And I'll be frank with you, sometimes it was too late. Like mm. once people are gone, they're gone <laughs> uh, is one thing. And once you've damaged trust and engagement, you know, it's very hard to recover lost trust. And so the, the, these are the things that, because I thought if we had organizations more agile, more responsive, we'd have fewer of these change fires to put out. Yeah, that's fascinating. But hey, Paul, if you don't mind, I would like to maybe pick on a couple of chapters in your book and, right, and share those with our listeners. By the way, we only have nine chapters to go through. So which one do you want to pick on? Well, hey, let, let's pick on chapter one. And I, I know we've kind of talked a little bit about this, but I, I just really love the topic and I find it to be quite uh, fascinating. But I also think there's a lot to be learned here and a lot that we can apply to the field, right, to the practice. And so You'd mentioned in your chapter one, this idea of failed change. I, well, actually, the title is called Failed Change, the Greatest Preventable Cost to Business. 
Isn't that a possibility, right? I mean, I, I, that's a significant possibility. But Paul, you also discuss in that chapter change leadership and the human science. And so, what can you tell me, and what can you tell our listeners? What can human science tell us about issues of failed organizational change and how it can be prevented? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. So the guy, uh, I have a quote in the book, uh, as I was researching it, I found a quote from a first uh, dean of the Harvard Business School. And uh, I think that was 100 years ago, it might have been 110 years ago now. Um, and his name's escaping me. And he said something like business is effectively a human enterprise. And the business leader needs to understand human behavior. And you know, what's really interesting when we got into the pandemic uh, in 2020, I was listening to senators and governors and mayors talking about behavioral change and behavioral science. Why? Because they wanted to change habits. And so I listened to leaders talking uh, talking about how we change people's habits. And it's a fascinating thing because it was an example to me of just what that astute gentleman from the Harvard Business Review saying uh, 110 years ago, something like that. human business is a human enterprise. We need to understand human business in order to be an effective human behavior in order to be an effective leader. So the question is, like, if you grow up, if you do an MBA, for example, how much of that, an MBA, is focused on the human side of business? Did you do an MBA and in the dark days back there? Do you go Good. And you probably you probably didn't right you probably didn't have time <laughs> you were too busy <laughs> um, but if you look at the curriculum if you pull up the Harvard Business Review they have I think they had 110 electives there were only very few and I think uh, there were none on change and it seemed to me there were one on leadership now this is an incredible disconnect for me is we're teaching business leaders about strategy and marketing and finance and accounting and economics and all of those you know, fascinating and interesting and valuable parts of the curriculum of a master's in business administration. But how much are we teaching them to lead? Yeah. And that was the question as I looked at the I looked at the curriculum. If you take someone out of an MBA, right, how well equipped are they to actually lead human beings? Mm-hmm. They may know marketing exceptionally well. They may be an expert in finance and accounting exceptionally well. They may be a highly trained economist. They may be a very exceptionally strong strategist. But can they lead a team of human beings to produce incredible results? And I was left with the answer, like, probably not. Mm-hmm. If they were a good leader to begin with, then they'll probably be you know, a good sort of natural leader to begin with. And they'll probably do a reasonable job at it. But I remember when I was a young, young director of a bank in the 80s, how I learned leadership, you know, I had a temp team of 10 people working for me, you know, when I was 23 years old or something like that. I knew nothing about management and leadership. I was brought up as a scientist. I was making it up as I go along. And what I used to do was watch the other people around me to take my cues and my leadership learning from what they were doing. But who taught them? It's kind of like 13-year-olds talking about sex, you know? <laughs> you, know um, you know, who's to say that the people that I was following and that I was taking my leadership lessons from were any good to begin with anyway? So that's the way I learned leadership was, in a sense, by watching the people around me. and. Yeah. You know, I did some things right, but, you know, I did many things awfully wrong as well. So I didn't have any formal education in leadership. So, and that's the problem we face in the world. I think there's so much ink spilled on the need for 
better leadership in the world, more moral leadership, better ethical leadership, more human-centered leadership in the world. And I don't think we've solved the problem of how to do that well. Like it's certainly you don't learn in high school. You know, and Paul, I, I love that topic. Man, we, we need to have you back on because uh, no, to talk about <laughs> topics. But no, you know, the, the article that I'm actually working on is, you know, it's exactly that is, you know, a lot of leaderships learn through school of hard knocks, right? You know, you get punched around a little bit, you're going to learn a little bit about leadership. And they learn through maybe some anecdotal, I guess, observation or evidence of other people and maybe a mentor and through some observation, you know, but so far today, and in really the premise of your work and your book is really based on, you know, a lot of science-based approach, you know, what's science-based evidence? What does it tell us? And, you know, when you look at the field of leadership and there are so many leadership styles and approaches, I mean, you know, we mentioned just a couple with servant leadership and authentic leadership and transactional mm-hmm. leadership and transformational leadership. And, you know, I think one thing for me is it is about educating leaders and there's phenomenal leaders, right? I mean, clearly traits has a lot to do with it, your skills, you know, how much you got beat up in the past and learned from it, you know, but I think a large part is if they don't get that training through an MBA or through school, then it really starts with reflection, does it not, as a leader and really trying to understand and say, no, I I think there is value in what, you know, maybe what research has to say to us and and what research-based evidence has to tell us and to be able to take that and apply that to your world and really kind of contemplate I think is really probably a number one step in improving leadership, you know, as an individual. Yeah, and um, improving our uh, improving our world. I mean, the the mantra of the consulting firm I forward was, um, you know, better leaders for better businesses for a better planet. Yeah, you know, that was the context when I work. I mean, we're playing a big game, and and reinventing leadership from the models <laughs> we inherited from the church and the military is going to be it's going to be you know it's, it'll take a hundred years. I mean, old ideas die hard. I mean, yeah. one interesting thing that I focused on was on risk. I mean, we're frequently taking risks in organization. And one of the science-based ideas on leadership is you need to understand how people respond, human beings respond when the pressure goes up. Do they take more risk or do they take less risk? There's a an interesting thing called the sunk cost fallacy. I think you, you and your readers will, will be familiar with it. It's like if you've invested a ton of money in something, is that a justification for keep doing it? Uh-huh. So we'll take the Vietnam War, for example, as one of the, one of the sort of Uh, OG examples of the sunk cost fallacy, and it's something called escalation of commitment, is you get yourself in deep. And it looks to you as a leader like the only way out is to get yourself in deeper. So if we leave now, we leave all this money on the table, we leave in the very macabre answer of the Vietnam War, we've got dead buddies, we've got parents at home, we've lost children, or something like that. How do we look Mm -hmm. if we leave now? And the answer to the question is, well, it's an important question, but it's not the right question. Because sadly, the money's not coming back. Uh, And and I think the question is, is now renewing our investment in a failed investment? And that could be a failed project. That could be a failed acquisition. uh, That could be a failed implementation or something like that. Do we double down? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or, do, or, or do we retreat? And, and how do you make that decision is a vital, vital decision, free yeah. of bias, free of cognitive bias. Because, you know, we all know, you know, if we look at your investments on Charles Schwab or wherever you manage your investment portfolio or something like that, if you've got something that's losing, you say you've lost half your money in it and you think, oh, well, I shouldn't, I can't possibly sell. I've lost. Well, that's not the right, that's not the right question. Yeah. how much you've lost. The question is, where is it going tomorrow? And you yeah. may have lost whatever you've lost. I feel sorry for you, boo-hoo. But the question <laughs> is, is like, how much do you let those losses 
those bad decisions inform your future decisions. And so these are the things I think leadership should be attuned to is because on a leadership team, say I'm a chief executive and say I've got something where the train is taking a dirt road or something like that. My team in making their recommendations to me and in discussing what to do next are going to be full of these biases that we're talking about, the sunk cost bias, the escalation of commitment bias. And what do you need to, you need to know that that's the way they're thinking about this. And you need to be the sort of leader that can say, hey, you know, understands enough about things like this to say, all right, do we double down here or is it time to retrench? Yeah. And in fact, for our listeners, you know, Paul, you'd mentioned just now the this idea of, you know, risk and cognitive bias. Well, as it so happens, uh, you have a whole chapter in your book, chapter three, uh, talking about a whole chapter. Yes. Talking about governance and psychology of risk, which is very good. And then in chapter five, you talk about another fascinating idea, and, and I just love it, is cognitive biases and failed strategies. But Paul, if I may, and this has been a fun conversation, and, but before I let you go today, I want to ask you two more questions. You know, so Paul, um, I, in part two of your book, you discuss a lot of how change strategy and change tactics interact, Right. And in fact, this idea, as you mentioned to your epiphany, right, is this whole idea of mapping from strategy to tactical action. And, you know, I mean, strategy is one thing and being able to execute it against strategy is truly a whole different ballgame in my view. But then in your book, you kind of wrap up chapter nine called Leading with Science. So what would you say to practitioners? And maybe I'm going to combine my last question in this one as well. And we always like to leave our listeners with what I call a little bit of a golden nugget, right? A little piece of advice. Um, so let's combine the two questions, perhaps. But yeah. what would you say to practitioners that want to apply research and science to their trade? Uh, what advice would you offer as a self-starter for practitioners? Well, we want to understand human behavior better. Uh, so that's one thing. So I think I've said that you can't really lead a team of human beings unless you know understand how, how they'll behave. You know, what's going to motivate someone? What's mm-hmm. going to inspire them? We already talked a little bit about how they're thinking about risk you know, how they're thinking about managing projects that perhaps aren't going so well. How one of the other biases that you've, of course, run across since you've made your living doing it is the project fallacy, which is, you know, that we underestimate, grotesquely underestimate. You know what percentage of IT projects overrun? Yeah. So like 83% or something like that. (laughs) You know, I mean, that has huge implications for capital budgeting and organization because when you're considering making an investment, you're calculating ROI based on how much you're going to have to spend. If you have to spend twice as much, you're screwed, right? Because it goes your ROI. And of course, the the world is legendarily full of things that have gone with. So that's one thing. I want to leave you guys, your listeners, with a provocation, though. I started to think about leadership uh, when I was writing that chapter. And I thought about who are the leaders that I think are just really... Because we talked a little bit about human-centered leadership and about being caring and being a servant leadership. I thought about two guys who have been normally successful, um, Elon Musk and Steve Jobs. Mm-hmm. And uh, they're both brilliant in their own way. Uh, mm-hmm. Think what you like about Elon Musk. He's yeah. one of the people whose like, signature brilliance is almost no one I can think of who is serially innovated from the first online yellow pages, uh, which is, I think, his thing that he did when he was in his 20s in San mm-hmm. Francisco. And then he sold that. And then it was PayPal. And then he took his fortune from PayPal. I think it was almost a billion dollars that he made from PayPal and put it into SpaceX and Tesla and a boring company and, and, uh, <laughs> and in batteries. And so the guy's a true genius. But it's not accurate to say that he's good with people. 
uh, there's a, a story where one of his employees had just had a child be born and said, you know, I need to go be with my wife. My kid was born yesterday. And he said, are you kidding, man? You know, listen, we got work to do here. Um, and, you know, he's an admirer of Jack Ma's 996 philosophy, nine to nine, six days a week. That's what you need yeah. to be doing. I mean, he's famously said these things like to this. It's not like the guy. It's not like the guy is learning as he goes along. I mean, you said that last week, right? He said, yeah. you know, if you want to work at Tesla, that's the way it's going to be. Yeah. Um, so he's not great with people. And neither was Steve Jobs. And neither, you know, somewhat less the case was Bill Gates. Uh, Steve Jobs was famous for throwing things and for losing his shit in meetings. So it came to question. These guys are brilliant in a particular way that few other people are. But yet they seem to be so good at strategy that they can get away with being terrible with people. Is the opposite true? Are there people who are you know, terrific with people who are shitty at strategy? And what does that mean if you're composing a leadership team? And so you know, these are the questions that I've begun to ask myself when we think about like the models of leadership we need for the 21st century, because I think everybody in the world wants leaders to be more human-centric and to be more caring and concerned. And that's not just like a moral thing. That's like an effectiveness thing. Like the yeah. theory is, if you're really good with people, you'll be a more effective leader. That's got to be axiomatically true. But then, you know, how do people like Musk and Jobs get a free pass? Because it certainly would be foolish to say that they were bad leaders. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so the, that's a provocation I want to leave your leaders with as we're thinking about this is, is you know, what, what makes a great leader? And can you get away with huge deficiencies in one aspect of leadership if you're incredibly strong in another? I'll leave that. I'll leave that as a provocation and a question. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Thanks, Paul. What an insightful, fun conversation to be sure. Can you tell our listeners how they can get in, in touch with you or how they can purchase your book? Or um, And we'll also include a link in the show notes, of course. Yeah, well, that's good. Well, I got a new book coming out called Change Myths. Probably in 10 days, it will appear on Amazon. It's going to be really, I think it's going to be really, really a great book. I dare say it may upset a few people at the Harvard Business School because I'm not very kind to some of their ideas on organizational change management. But anyway, it's going to be out there. Uh, I'm a partner at IBM Consulting uh, in Culture and Leadership, so obviously I can be reached there. Buy my books on Amazon. I think the easiest way today in today's world is just to hit me up on LinkedIn if you want to have a conversation. Uh, you and I, I think we'll find ourselves having another conversation uh, at so. some stage. I'm very excited. I'm excited about that. Yeah. I certainly want to wish you all the prosperity and all the all the all the goodwill in the world for 2023, and may your business reach new heights. Thank so you very much. Um, very, yeah. Yeah, excited, excited yeah. to be connected, excited to have a partnership. Yeah, absolutely. Paul, thank you very much for that. And thank you for your insight and your time. We really appreciate it. We'll, we'll certainly include a link to your book and your new book uh, as well in the show notes. Yeah. In the meantime, sir, be well. Thank you again. And uh, we'll certainly talk soon. All right. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of the ERP OCJ podcast. This podcast is intended as a forum to study, share, and discuss ERP organizational change successes and challenges. We discuss the people, process, and technological components of ERP organizational change by drawing on knowledge from extensive research, collaborative learning, and practitioner expertise and experience. We are incredibly grateful to have friends, colleagues, and mentors join us in our podcast as we seek to promote, connect, and foster relationships in the ERP organizational change community and contribute to its success by bringing research and practice closer together. 
We want to make sure this is the most useful and insightful ERP podcast you listen to. And we'd love your help in doing so by leaving us feedback and a review. A great place to do so is at Apple Podcasts. Just click on the Listen in Apple Podcasts link, then click Ratings and Reviews, and let us know your thoughts. You can get more info about the show, including show notes and episode highlights for this and all of our episodes by visiting nestleandassociates.com and clicking the podcast option. Please join us again next week as we discuss the latest ERP organizational change research, practice, and stories. And don't forget to follow us on social media, hashtag the ERPOCJ. Thanks again for listening. Have a fantastic week.